0: Well, read in your hearing was a passage in Luke chapter 24 as you heard about the walk uh, from Emmaus there, the Lord Jesus Christ, as He revealed what the Scriptures said about Him, the risen Lord. What What a glorious conversation that we were let in on that. And as we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Uh, the Apostle Paul is recalling those glory days, if you will, and also, of course, regaling in what it means, particularly to the Corinthians, but, of course, to us uh, who follow those Corinthians as we anticipate and look at and live in the glories of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is possible that this day might... Incline our thoughts to a picture of precious memories with a stone rolled away. It might be today that you um, perhaps remember an Easter from times gone by with your families and so forth. The Apostle Paul is, uh, of course, not uh, rejecting the goodness in those fond memories, but nonetheless he intends to draw us back into the the beauties and the goodness uh, and the realities of a risen Savior. And most notably, what, what is it that uh, not only that God has done in the event of the resurrection, but what he has done in those who are redeemed it seemed fitting that we look at the passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 it is our desire perhaps in a few months that we might actually look at the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians as we track along through the scriptures but nonetheless let us look intently at these 11 verses and a few others as we consider the glorious primacy of the resurrection and that is That is the Apostle Paul's intent here, uh, this idea of the primacy of the resurrection. With all due respect to the crucifixion, it is the resurrection that the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to. And in fact, uh, there are some, most notably whom I have referenced and will indicate more, Lord willing, in a few minutes. Richard Gaffin and others are persuaded... um, in an orthodox manner, no less, that the resurrection is the central point of the Apostle Paul's theology. And uh, it seems uh, really unarguable that that is the case, and no doubt we see certainly an aspect of that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so we begin looking at this phrase by phrase, if you will, and we look here at the very first verse... The first phrase in this verse, now I would remind you. Now I would remind you. Now, when your mother reminds you of something, what normally there's something that uh, perhaps occurs to your eyes when your mother is reminding you of something. What is that? they roll back in your head, right? My mother is reminding me of something today, and and so uh, hopefully... You'll not think of that as you consider this because, again, the reality is is this is a glorious day. This is the day that we celebrate as Easter. This is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. This is the day that, in fact, has marked what we understand uh, to be the fulfillment of the fourth commandment as we enter into Sunday by Sunday the worship of Almighty God, which we are persuaded as God's people that he has laid down for us in all of its glory. So when someone says they're about to remind you about something, it might be that uh, you might insist that you don't need to be reminded. That you already know that. Well, the Corinthians knew it as well. At least they thought they knew it. They knew it in a sense that Job knew it in the first number Of chapters in the book of Job until at the end, Job says basically, I thought I knew you, but now I know you. And so, this is the idea that the Apostle Paul is getting at. Now, I would remind you we are a people who are tainted by sin. Even those of us who are redeemed, are enjoying the renewal of life in us, we also understand and we see in a number of passages the importance of being reminded. The reality is, is that we're swimming in distractions. We're swimming in distractions. Most everyone here has swam before. Hopefully you've only swam in water. Swimming in other things is not good, typically. But when you swim in water, no doubt you're surrounded by the water, right? It's, it's the medium uh, in which you're actually existing is water, right? Well, among the things that we, uh, if you will, sort of swim in, the thing, the medium, if you will, that surrounds us in our Post-modern culture uh, is a number of things, but nonetheless, it is certainly distractions. It's distractions. Many of our lives could be characterized as short spurts of productivity mingled with checking your phone every three minutes. Now, that isn't a random number. That's actually the national average, is to check your phone every 3 minutes now you try to have a detailed developed thought out meditation and check your phone every 3 minutes and i can tell you right now it's not going to happen but that's that's the environment in which we live Oh, how we need to be exhorted and encouraged day after day. Oh, how we need to be reminded and snatched back into not that which isn't reality, but that which actually is the reality that God has called us to and saved us for. Have you really been tracking along with Holy Week This week, have you contemplated and meditated as we began last week with the triumphal entry and considered the Last Supper and the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, the betrayal, the trials, the crucifixion, the giving up of the apostles, and then the resurrection? I mean, the apostles of Christ had pretty much decided that this whole thing was a bust. And they had all the scriptures that the Lord Jesus used on that walk to Emmaus as he described what they said of himself. We forget. We, we forget our minds are like buckets with holes in them. Now, that is kind of a crude illustration, I know, But we forget. 1 Corinthians 4.17, the Apostle Paul says, This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 2 Timothy 1, six, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and they're established in the truth that you have. And Jude, the Lord's brother, says in Jude 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. We know, but do we know? That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at. It just isn't a kind of a grit your teeth and clench your fists. No, the Apostle Paul was contending against something with the Corinthian church. And while there are some who I expect are redeemed that live as if they're not in some ways we, of course, can also approach the resurrection in that way to our peril. The Apostle Paul is reminding them additionally because they among them there were some who were swayed by false teaching. We are swayed by false teaching and false people. You might consider, were you to think about your investment in the revelation of God in the Scriptures. If you were to think about uh, your understanding, your grasp of the truths of God. Can you think of that right now? If you were to rate your understanding and your ability to apply the truths of God, that which you have taken in, that which you have meditated upon, that which is in your mind, that which you have the use of. Could you rate that right now on a scale of 1 to 10, silently? 1 being a very small ability and 10 being a great ability. Could you think about that for a moment? Remember that time you were somewhere and you wish you had a tool? If you don't have it, you can't use it. It's not there. You'll have to do something else. You'll have to go about another way. If you want to contend with false teaching, how do you expect to do that? Because you're going to encounter it pretty much every day. You're going to encounter false teaching every day. You're going to encounter people that say, Well, you know, that really doesn't matter. And the Apostle Paul was contending with that with the Corinthians. The confidence, the countenance, the demeanor of certain individuals lends credence to what they say, yet it may not be true. And if it isn't true, it's going to lead you astray. On a compass, there are 360 degrees. Those are actually the larger marks on a compass. There are some that are smaller. But let's say, for instance, you were a sailor and you were sailing from, let's say, the port of Norfolk. You wanted to go into the Mediterranean Sea. Ah, the Mediterranean. 3,800 miles if you go on a Navy ship, you'll be going about 10 miles an hour. And if you're one degree off, you're going to miss the Straits of Gibraltar, which are seven miles wide. As a matter of fact, you're going to end up maybe in Casablanca. And that's not where you want to go, because you're not going to get to the Mediterranean that way on a ship. If you're one degree off, And you do that for a very long period of time. You're in a very bad place. And the Apostle Paul was contending with that idea. Some of the Corinthians flatly denied the resurrection of the dead. Some affirmed it was nothing but a change of the course in life. Others rejected a future state of recompense by denying the resurrection of the dead. Paul had to laboriously contend against the false teachers. How many of you today think it doesn't matter what you do? How many of you think that heaven will be exactly the same for you if you do absolutely nothing for the next 60 years regarding your embrace of Christ? That is a heresy. That is a heresy. That is a heresy of one who is slothful, of one who has ultimately rejected the resurrection. It matters what you do every day, although obviously you're not working your way to heaven. To stammer in one's faith in the area of the resurrection will result in great spiritual danger. Consider the great importance the Apostle Paul places in this doctrine. Only by holding this truth firmly can Christians stand in the day of trial and remain faithful to God. Now, there are some that stand. There are some that are stalwart. Why do they do it? Well, perhaps it's because they appreciate the commendations they get from the people around them. That's pride. That isn't the same thing as leaning into the resurrection. God has freed us up to dispassionately follow him in the difficulties and the challenges of life because of the resurrection of the dead. These truths must be retained if they would save us. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10.22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Apostle Paul also reminds them, because we tend to underestimate the importance of foundational things. We tend to underestimate the importance of foundational things. Things. You want to do algebra? You're not going anywhere with algebra until you learn your times tables. And you say, well, I don't really want to spend time on these times tables. They're laborious. They're not any fun. I just want to find X. If you reject the foundational things, you're not going to do algebra. Although it may seem that algebra is very approachable to you, you will never understand it if you don't know something as simple as your times tables. Did you realize that apparently 26% of those who indicate that they're evangelicals don't believe the Bible is true? Twenty-six percent. Further issues such as honoring the Lord's Day, adhering to the confession of faith, retaining a biblically faithful worship service, upholding the church as the pillar and support of the truth are often viewed by those professing faith as outdated and unimportant. What is this thing of singing faithful hymnody? Or looking into an historic document week after week. What is that? What is that? Gathering together to worship. It seems so archaic. That's foolish talk. That's to reject the foundational things that God has given us. And we'll we'll not move on in our faith if we view them as insignificant some people are reminded of things they were taught and must admit they never believed them in the first place. Sometimes the warmth of fellowship, the genuine personal interest, individuals in the congregation take in others and the interesting topics of discussion can draw and retain people for a time. But without believing the doctrinal truths, these will inevitably fall away. And they may take others with them who may also admit that they never really believed. The Apostle Paul certainly had to affirm that he was reminding people of something that they had heard, but they actually never believed it in the first place. And lastly, some have unfortunately gotten over the resurrection. They got over it. Kind of like when a married couple gets over loving one another. That's a really bad place to be. Or maybe when adults give in to the officiousness of life and become grumpy. You got over the joy of life. Now every day is just this bleak thing. Have you gotten over the resurrection? Does it still hold for you the wonder that God intended for it to be? Does the concept of the empty tomb of the angels proclaiming that He isn't dead, He's alive, why do you look for the one who's living in a tomb? Why do you do that? Have you gotten over the resurrection? Is it to you something that it was intended to be? Something that would mark every moment of your life? Is your life... As the Apostle Paul has described it, resurrection life. Because that's what, that's what eternal life is. It's resurrection life. And the Apostle Paul is coming to these Corinthians, and he's coming to us as well, reminding us. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. The Word says... Of the gospel that I gospelized to you. Paul didn't create the gospel. It was given to him by Christ. It was revealed by God. The gospel wasn't some sort of thing that the Apostle Paul came up with. It was delivered to him. The gospel is good news. It's delivered. It's received. It's sent. Was the gospel delivered to you? Did you receive it? What difference does the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ have in your life? The gospel. The Apostle Paul received it from whom? Not from the apostles, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he says, "...and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you." That's the Lord Jesus indicated in Matthew 10. It is this holding fast, it is this affirmation, it is this life moment by moment grasping and being held by God into this resurrection life that is not belief in vain. He says in verse 3, "...for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received." that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That was the great failure of the Jews, wasn't it? They seemed to be so proud that they had the oracles of God. Maybe they read them, but they didn't know them. The oracles of God that they had revealed primarily one thing. The resurrection. The Messiah. That he would come. That he would be the one that God would send and save his people. Not from the Roman Empire. But from their own sins. And eternity in hell. These things were written. Written. They were written. How was the truth confirmed? Let's consider the Old Testament Scriptures. For instance, consider Psalm 16.10. The Bible says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 17.15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Well, it is the resurrection. Isaiah twenty-six nineteen: Your dead shall live; their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah fifty-three four through six: Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows; yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he rose from the dead. Daniel 12:2 Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. I got some bad news for you and I got some good news for you right here out of Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. Everybody's going to get resurrected. Everybody's going to get resurrected. Some to an eternal death, and some to an eternal life. Everyone will have a resurrection, but will yours be a resurrection to life? The Bible goes on and says, "...that He appeared." To Cephas and then to the twelve. I'm in verse five. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Most of them, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. John twenty one fourteen says. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Mark sixteen seven. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Luke twenty four thirty four, saying, "The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." <coughs> Read in your hearing. no doubt about it. The Lord Jesus appeared here to Cephas, Peter, that is, to the twelve. That is, the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. The Apostle Paul, again, the implication obvious, of course, uh, go see them! Talk with these people! They're still living. Consider what they say. They have seen the risen Christ. And then, as the Apostle Paul says... In verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, as it were, an ectopic pregnancy, this sort of miscarriage, if you will, the Apostle Paul, as he humbly indicates where he was, he appeared also to me, one who persecuted Christians. There's a short digression here by Paul as he discusses himself and the visitation by Christ. Lastly, also Paul is one untimely born. Matthew Henry says, A humble spirit magnifies the grace of God. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His being raised up by the Father is glorious among all glorious things. Think about the most grand thing that you've ever seen. Perhaps a beautiful mountain range. Maybe the birth of a little child. maybe it was a sunset perhaps it was the Milky Way in the middle of the ocean the Apostle Paul says the resurrection is far grander than all of those things it is the primacy of the glorious life on earth of Christ and of all that he has done. Now, I mentioned Richard Gaffin, who I appreciate very much, as do many, regarding this idea of resurrection. Our own Woody has introduced me to Richard Gaffin years ago, For which, as I said, I'm greatly appreciative. And Gaffin has done some good work as he helps for us to understand not only the glories of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on that day when he rose that we celebrate week by week, but what does it mean for us, the redeemed? Well, let's consider the way that God reveals himself both in redemption and in revelation, in what he does as well as in what he says. And here's a statement that would be important to all of us. How is this revelation verified of God? This revelation about this one sin, about the Messiah, about the need even for us to be redeemed from our sins, about the impact of our own sinful nature, former which we receive from our parents this original sin that damns us, that makes necessary redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has revealed that, but how has he indicated it in his acts, the acts of history? Of course, he has done this in the resurrection. Gaffin says the essence of theology is the interpretation of the history of redemption. What actually happened? I have room for fiction in my reading plan, but history really happened. How much time do you give that? History really happened. The Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth. The God of all things, of all eternity, has this infinite and intentional plan. And it's laid out for us throughout history not only what has God said, but what has He done? What has He done? What actually happened, and what does it mean? Well, let's consider this idea right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we look at this idea of first fruits. Again, the question at hand it's not inappropriate. Although it could be an irreverent question, nonetheless, we can ask this. What impact does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ have in my life today? The Apostle Paul answers that question right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would draw your attention to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. If linear rationality bores you, I'm sorry. The Apostle Paul uh, seems to be pretty persuaded about the process. And I'm grateful because it seems to simplify matters quite a bit. When we look at this, we should see that the point of these sacrifices, that is of the first fruits, is that they were not offered up for their own sake, but as representative of the total harvest. While the first fruits concept does bring to mind the initial harvest, it's only part of the whole This aspect gives these sacrifices their significance. What's my point? Better yet, what is the Apostle Paul's point? Well, let's give an example. For instance, let's say, for instance, that you have presented to you a half bushel of peaches. Well, go ahead and make them Parker County peaches. Why not? Are you with me there? You say to the farmer, what a wonderful harvest. He says, yeah, these are the first fruits. But there's a whole lot more. There's a, this is only a part. I'm not talking about stuff that I haven't picked yet, by the way. I, got, I can bury you in peaches. Right now. And this is the idea behind the first fruits. It isn't just the initial, it's only representative of the whole. And this is the idea of the first fruits. This is the idea. When Paul calls Eponatus the first fruits of Asia in Romans 16.5, he stands out as the beginning of the manifold yield produced by the preaching of the gospel. Thus the idea of the first fruits of the Spirit is that the Spirit presently possessed by believers is a token, an initial enjoyment of the adoption, which will be enjoyed fully at the resurrection of the body. I draw your attention to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, the Apostle Paul is addressing none other than the resurrection life here. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What is the death spoken of here? Well, the death to sin spoken of here has taken place in the life history of the believer. The Apostle Paul isn't talking about some future point. He's talking about something that occurred in the life of this believer. And he goes on to say that like If we were united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When does this resurrection to life occur? In the life history of a believer. Life in Christ is resurrection life. It's the resurrection of the inner man. Now, the point that the Apostle Paul is making here is that regarding the inner person of who you are that is resurrected with the Lord Jesus Christ and given new life, the point that Paul is making is this. When you get to heaven you will already have been experiencing resurrection life. You will await the resurrection of the body. And so this should draw us back to ask about our own life experience with Christ. Can I say that right now I'm living resurrection, life, if we're united to Christ in His death, and we are also united to Him in His resurrection. Union with Christ is an experiential reality. The effectual call of the gospel is a call into personal communion with Christ for the purpose of bearing fruit. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in Romans chapter 7. If you're still in Romans 6, you can turn a page perhaps and look at Romans 7 in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. The point isn't that we were raised with Christ, but that we're in union with the one who has been raised. Wait. Isn't that the same thing? Not exactly. We're in union with the one who has been resurrected. And that is the source of our resurrection life. This occurrence in the past, as John Murray has said, makes necessary that which follows. That which follows is the resurrection life of the believer, experienced in the life history of the believer, such as in 2 Corinthians 6.15, all might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. when the Apostle Paul anticipates his own death, as he perhaps occasionally takes a glance at his legs and his arms and he looks at how much a shell of a physical man that he is and considers and thinks back on those persecutions, on the 40 lashes minus one, on the days and nights at sea. When he was contemplating that and he said, I... Would rather be in heaven. But my life is necessary for you. And the idea here with this concept of the resurrection of Christ making necessary our own resurrection life is this idea. It is... um, Not only a certainty, but it is the necessary consequence of what Christ has done. When you throw a ball in the air, there is a necessary consequence to that ball. What is that necessary consequence? You don't have to have a master's degree in physics to know that. The necessary consequence of throwing a ball in the air is that it falls to the ground. Now, I get that upon its arch up there, someone could grab it and it wouldn't fall. I understand that. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about the necessary consequence of something. It isn't just that it's certain that it will fall. It's not just that I know it will fall. It's not just that I think it will fall or that in most cases it will fall. That's not the concept of necessary consequence. The necessary consequence is simply this idea of cause and effect. Of cause and effect. Your life in Christ is by necessity resurrection life. There's no such thing as a lifeless redemption. Your lethargy and ambivalence to God and the things of God, to the church and to the word of God are not indicators of resurrection life. With all the sobriety that I have, And with all the concern that I have, it is important that we understand that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, when applied to us by the Holy Spirit in life, will of necessity produce in you resurrection life. If you don't have resurrection life, you are not redeemed. If you can look at your life and say, it's not here. I don't have it. I don't have resurrection life. I have no longing for Christ. I have no desire for the Word of God. It it isn't that you love God perfectly, but do you love God? Not even as much as He deserves, but do you love God? Do you have any attraction to the Word of God? Do Do you concern yourself with the things of the church of God? It is, it is of necessity that if you have life in Christ, it will be resurrection life. It is an important, most urgent question. The Apostle Paul says, it is of, help me out here, first importance. It is of first importance. Now, we're not talking about a perfect life. We're not talking about you always having the right answer. We're not talking about you memorizing the whole Bible next week. We're not talking about you uh, snapping into and becoming some kind of preacher or something. That isn't the point. That isn't isn't the necessary consequence of resurrection life. But it is life. It is this growing desire to know God, to love God, to be with God's people. I mean, the Apostle John tells us that in this little letter of 1 John. These are marks... And they're not negotiable in that sense. The point is, he's not saying that in most cases this happens. He says, no, 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 no. No, this, this is resurrection life. He's showing us. He's, he's telling us. He's, he's giving us the understanding here. Those of us who know nothing about cars, he says, okay, here's what you do. Pop the hood. Open it up. Okay, is the engine there? That's good. We're on our way. Right, and so this is what the apostle John is doing in the little letter of first John. He he says, Okay, let's think about this thing of resurrection life. Do you love God? Is there any love of God that has come not from yourself, but is it an alien love? Is it a righteousness, a love of Christ that has come from somewhere outside of you? How do you feel about the word of God? Well, my quiet time's kind of dry. Well, okay, that's understandable. That doesn't mean you're not a child of God. But let me ask you a question. Do you care anything about taking in the truths of God? Is there any attraction in that way? Not so you uh, can show your friends that you kind of get them with some sort of passage of Scripture. But is there a longing for that? What about God's people? When you consider coming to church on the Lord's Day, do you kind of look at your shoes and you say, yeah, those guys can't sing? They have this weird guy up there talking forever. I want to just go do what I want to do. Those are not markers of resurrection life. The Apostle Paul says, I delivered to you, I delivered to you that which is of first importance. That according to the Scriptures, that which was written, not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say? died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And we of his people are part of that harvest, part of that manifest harvest of which the Lord Jesus is the first fruits. Let us pray.